So today we're in chapter 6, uh, 12 through 20. Let me read that uh, for us, and then we'll begin to kind of walk through this together. Paul writes, and he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And, and then he gives this instruction. And he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul offers us here a, a really a difficult teaching, a difficult word. And, and one of the things you'll find if you look from translation to translation is that commentators and Bible translators trip and fall all over themselves trying to figure out exactly what Paul is doing there in this beginning section. So you'll see some that have uh, quotation marks around them, giving us an, an understanding that this was a phrase commonly used there in Corinth, and others it'll, it'll be coming from Paul. But the Greek text doesn't have any of those, and so I'm just going to address it as Paul's just sticking this out there and just saying that we understand this, but he's helping us to understand Christian freedom and Christian responsibility within an appropriate context. And what's incredibly helpful for us is to recognize where this passage follows from where this passage follows from. And so you got to the end of kind of this, this section earlier in uh, chapter 6, and so we started in verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so he went on and listed people that kind of fall under this casting category of unrighteous. And everybody says, well, that's me. Like, he, he, he talks about the things that I'm guilty of. That's me. And so he's saying that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and that's me. But look at what he does. He, he appends to the end of that. He changes the trajectory of their lives. He says, of such were some of you, in verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so he has told them that the trajectory of their lives, where they were headed, has been fundamentally altered by their encounter with Jesus Christ. And so it's true with us, that many of us, we have just kind of a wide variety of backgrounds, but each of us, on the basis of our encounter and reception of the salvific work of Jesus Christ, have our eternal destiny forever altered. And so it's to this group of people who have had their destinies forever altered that he turns and addresses the topic of Christian freedom and responsibility. Well, no, uh, no short list of philosophers have entered in, and, and we have all of this kind of understanding of, of what it is to be true to yourself. And so from Hamlet, to thine own self be true, uh, to Sinatra, I did it my way, to Bon Jovi, it's my life, and to De La Soul, if you prefer, you know, me, myself, and I. And so I can tell those of you who are in high school in the 80s there, there you go. And so what he's talking about isn't this, this radical imposition of having it my way, but in some sense, he's learning to balance that. 
which was, was counterintuitive to those in Corinth and is counterintuitive to most people you meet today. Most people, if you were to meet them and you were to disagree with their worldview, you were to disagree with some stance they took on you know, First Amendment, Second Amendment, or, or, or some term of sexuality, they'd say, look, I'm just being true to myself. I'm just being true to myself. I try and live my life in such a way to be true to myself. But if you're being true to yourself, you're not taking anybody else uh, into consideration, are you? And as a Christian, being, being true to yourself isn't something ultimately you get to do, right? Your life is not an exercise of personal exploration. It's not. Your life is a testimony to the salvific work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. And that's where he's going to end. So he starts there and he begins to kind of unroll things that would have made great sense to them. And so he starts off, he says, all things are lawful for me. And there would have been this, this man and woman in the back and they would have said, amen, hallelujah. And then he adds to it, he says, but not all things are helpful. And they're like, oh, hold on. But all things are lawful. And so they're thinking about all the horrible, ruinous, life-changing and life-altering things and the headaches they've had from the previous weeks and the exploits they've had. And they're like, all things are lawful. There is nothing forbidden for me. And then Paul adds to it. But not all things are helpful. So the first thing we note is that in a pursuit of self-exploration, in a pursuit of trying to live my life to the utmost and be what I want to be and explore all the things I want to explore and to enjoy all the things I want to enjoy, there is a limitation to this experience. And that limitation, he first begins, is with a recognition that not all things are helpful. Which leads us to ask a question of our lives and the way we live. Are the experiences I'm going through helpful? And helpful to what? helpful towards being conformed to the image of Christ. And so he hits again. He says, all things are lawful for me. And again, the people in the back of the room, this time slightly quieter, they say, all things are lawful. I feel like there's a catch, and so I'm just not going to yell this time. He says, but you need to understand something. I will not be dominated by anything. In the pursuit of self-exploration, in the pursuit of trying to live my life and be autonomous, to be free, to be self-determined, right? To be self-determined, to want to make my own decisions in this recognition that, that nobody else is compelling me to make a decision that I don't want to, to live a life I don't want to. That if that's the way and that's the, the path that you're living on, ultimately, I would tell you that that is, is counter to the gospel, so Paul tells us, he says, I will not be dominated by anything. And so one of the things that restricts our freedom are those things that are not helpful. And another thing that restricts our freedom, and recognize this is you submitting yourself. This isn't you being shackled. This is you freely, willingly submitting yourself to this. The other thing is recognizing that sin wants to dominate you. It wants to rule your life. Jesus spoke on this in John 8, in 31 and through 34. He said, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide my word, you're truly my disciples. So if you do the things that I've said, if you live the way that I've said, you're truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. What is the truth? The truth is 
It is who Jesus is. He is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do. And he calls us to live life in accordance with the dictates of his teaching and the manner in which he lived. They answered and said, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? In essence, saying, look, we've never been enslaved. We've never known the yoke of slavery. Jesus has his eye-opening statement. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, Paul picks up on the same idea in Romans 6, and in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? The compelling point for us as Christians is that we can't have it both ways. We can't both live in order to kind of licentiousness and sinfulness and libertine and also pursue Christ. These two things are antithetical. They are opposed to one another. They are radical opposites. But repeatedly we're compelled to explore, to enjoy, to do whatever we want to do and that there's no consequence. And we see, too, that the Corinthians were pulled into the same understanding. You see, they had, to, they had created and were operating within this dualistic understanding that there are two realities. There's a spiritual reality and there's a physical reality. And whatever I do in the physical realm does not ultimately impact the spiritual realm. And whatever happens and is true in the spiritual realm has no bearing on the physical realm. And this is the reality in which they lived. And so the, the, the philosophy that they were adhering to said it didn't matter what I did to my body, because it could not, actions of my body, affect spiritual reality. And spiritual reality had no weight and no bearing on physical entities. My body, your body. And so this is the philosophy that, that kind of undergirded and supported and directed their lives. And so look what he says. He says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And they'd say, we agree. We agree. God has created your stomach to digest, to process food, to squeeze and expand and do all kinds of things. And and he said, and, and food was created to be in your stomach, and so you could walk around and say, get in my belly, and it would be scriptural. And then he says, then God will destroy one and the other. Recognize this, all food will be laid waste. And you say, not the fried goodness, and yes! Twinkies, though, they will survive. But all fried goodness will go uh, to the wayside. And he said, in your stomach, that's going to go to the wayside. God's going to destroy this. And they're saying, see, look, we, we knew that all this physical entity, my body, my stomach, and all these things, they're just passing, they're just bleeding. They don't weigh anything on the spiritual reality over here. Paul says, well, hold on a second. Just because you understand something about the stomach doesn't mean you understand the reality and, and the depravity in which you engage. And so he goes, goes on, he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what has he done? And so he's brought back together this understanding of spiritual reality and physical reality, and he's brought them together and said, look, you need to understand that the processes you engage with in your body, in your flesh, have spiritual, eternal consequences. Your body is meant, designed, created, designated for the Lord. And what does that say to us? It says the way I engage in the flesh has to flow from my understanding of the mandates of Scripture and the spiritual reality. And so I'm not free to everything. So I have to ask the question, in the ways that I use my body, 
is this helpful? I have to ask myself the question, the way I use my body, am I being dominated by this? Am I enslaved to this sin, or am I acting as a freed slave as under the Lord? And so they would ask this question, well, hold on a second, hold on a second. Our bodies are going to be decimated. They're going to be no more. And Paul says, that's true. The stomach's going to be destroyed. The food's going to be destroyed. But look at, look at this. The Lord God was raised up by God the Father, and we will also be raised up by the same power. There in verse 14, he says, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his, by his power. So on the one hand, I have this fleshly body that is failing. And sometimes when I walk, I feel like a tendon moves over the kneecap, and I do this number, and I say, it's failing. Like, I get that. I don't need any more help remembering. But on the other hand, after I go dead, and I'm buried in the ground, and I become worm food for however long, God is going to raise up this body again. I'm thinking with a better knee. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. Jesus could walk through doors. I really just want a knee that functions the right way. And so they're saying, okay, hold on a second. So how I use my body in the here and now has eternal consequence because God's also going to raise my body. And he says, now you're starting to get it. Now you're starting to understand. So verse 15, he begins to kind of give them this, this theological understanding of the body, this theological understanding of how our bodies function. And so he says, do you not know that, that your bodies are members of Christ? Do you not know that your body are members of Christ? And so if you were to look at your own body and say, look, I've got an arm, I've got an arm, I've got two legs, I've got toes, I've got fingers and all this stuff, I've got a nose, and some of your noses are bigger than others, and, 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 and all these things, but all these various components are members of my body. They are not separated, right? Uh, for me, as you look at me, they are not separated. They are members of my body. He says the same true that is true for you physically is true of you spiritually in your connection to Jesus. Now, last week in John 14, we, we began to kind of see this reality. In John 14, 20, it says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So we have this radical union with God. We have this connection to God, and how does it function? Well, Jesus begins to kind of talk in John 15 about the vine and the branches. In John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine, and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now listen, for apart from me you can do nothing if you are a Christian. And some of you in this room are not. But if you are a Christian, you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you would say that his blood has saved you, that his Holy Spirit has sealed you, and that you will continue on forevermore uh, until you see him again, either at your death or his coming then if that is true of you, then you are a member of Christ. And so what you do with your body is, should ultimately be a depiction of what he has done for you spiritually. And so we act submissively towards him because we recognize to do anything other is to be disingenuous to the whole. Do you see that? So if we're a member of Christ, then our actions flow from that understanding. Our actions flow from that reality. And so they get that, and they're like, okay, I get that, I understand that, I understand how that works. And so he begins to ask them this question. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ, and they say, that's us, that's our bodies, and make them members of a prostitute? Shall I take the members of my body and make them members of a prostitute? And he's talking here about sex, and and look what he says. He gives this the strongest answer possible for him. Never. 
That should never be a reality for you. No, for in Corinth, here in Greenville, not such a big deal, prostitution, for the members of this church. Right? <laughs> Man. Oh. Jay, do we install that camera that looks this way? We need all the eyes that are this big. Tomorrow morning, 1030, meeting. Holy moly. Not such a big deal, but in Corinth, it, it, it was a big deal, and it was understood. In fact, you can read from Plutarch and others who would go on to describe kind of the, the household. And so the wife was not bothered, or at least is recorded as not being bothered by her husband's extracurricular infidelity, and didn't consider it stepping outside the marriage. She just saw him as, like, he needs this. He needs to explore this in this way, and so it was culturally approved. When Valerie and I lived in Prague, I can remember meeting with uh, a, a woman who was married, a young couple, had had kids, and she would brag about her husband's machismo that he needed to be satisfied outside of their marriage. Because of what it said about him and his, how virile he was and just what a man he is. And so that's the reality that she believed. But Paul writes, and he says, look, you need to understand something. If you are a member of Christ, you should never be enjoined in this relationship with someone outside of the covenant of marriage. Never. And so he's going on, and he's going to give us a biblical understanding and a biblical rationale for why this should be this way. He says, do you not know that anyone who has joined himself to a prostitute has become one body with her? And they say, well, hold on a second. What does that mean? And so he quotes Genesis 2.24. It says, the two shall become one flesh. So in the physical act of having sex, this other reality comes into play, and they become one union. And so this idea of being joined together, in a very real sense, paints the picture of being glued to someone. Now, last week, I had broken something of Valerie's, and she was out of town, and so I began to try and fix it. And as I'm doing this, there are little bitty tiny pieces, and I got two of the outside pieces together, and what I realized is I had not put together the middle piece that goes between them. And there's never room for that middle piece. And it was super tiny, and so what did I do? I put the super glue on the little tiny piece, and I began to push it, and I began to shake, and I began to ply it apart, and I did this for quite a long time. And then what I realized is that I had glued my fingers together. <laughs> and the little piece was still not in there. So I've got no fingertips now, so it's the time to do the crime. <laughs> you really threw me off with the prostitution thing earlier. <laughs> and so in the same, not in the same way at all, actually... But in this, in this same kind of vein, this idea of being radically connected to someone else. And so this is what happens in marriage. And so preferably in marriage, you have, you have a man who's never been sexually active. You have a woman who's never been sexually active. And when the two of them come together, they are radically united and glued together. Now, unfortunately, within our culture, and within our day, and within the, the, the entirety of global history, this is not often the case that we see people who are sexually pure get married. And so we have people who have, who have bonded, who have glued, who have united themselves to many different people. And every single time we're united to someone other than our spouse within the confines and the covenant of marriage, it creates difficulties in our marriage. Because we have this, this union that we've shared with someone that God has not designed us to share it with. 
And if perhaps maybe you say, well, look, we're engaged and we're just, we're, we're, we're having sex together. Still, you're not abiding by the way God has created. You are stirring up emotions you're not ready biblically to enjoy. God has created sex to be this terrific thing. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that your marriage should be sex-filled. But sexual immorality has no place outside the confines of marriage. Sex has no place outside the confines of marriage. And to engage in any form of sex, any form of sex, doing pornography or, or just exploring, all of these things are Ill, illegitimate. And theologically, he would say that when you enter into this process, you're taking the members of Christ and you're prostituting them. Why? Because he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Because the spirit of the living God dwells inside of you. The way you act with your body, the way you engage physically, is always restricted and governed by your primary union with Christ. The ways Christians engage physically with other people are different and are restricted. You are free to do anything, but your freedom is constrained by what is helpful and those things that seek to exercise dominion over you. So Paul gives this helpful corrective. He gives this helpful bit of instruction. In verse 18, he says simply, flee from sexual immorality. This isn't this, always this picture of jumping up and running out of the room, but sometimes that's the appropriate thing to do. Flee sexual immorality. Don't see how close you can get to being sexually immoral. Abstain from it. Move away from it. Why? Because you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You are radically different. He has made you this way. Act in accordance with the way he has made you. So he gives us a reason. He says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And you say, well, what about the person who is morbidly obese? They seem to be sinning against their body. They're, they're gluttonous. Well, what about the person that starves themselves? They seem to be sinning against their body. They're mistreating their body. Well, what about the person that does this? And what about the person that does that? What about all these other various sins? And Paul would say, those things are still wrong. Those are still sins against the body. But none of those things unite you to another person the way the sex does. None of those things have this union of one creation endeavor that sex does. Those are sins outside the body. This is a sin against your own body. So look at how he ends. Look at 19 and 20. He reminds us of something he said to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he began to kind of get onto this ideal. And at that point in 3, 16 and 17, it was the idea of your body is the temple of God as corporately. So like us together, we together uh, represent, manifest, display the temple of God. He said, do you not know that you're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And he was talking at that point about the whole church. He was talking at that point about the whole church. But here he turns and he's talking about us as individuals. So he's talking about me, he's talking about Zach, he's talking about Dee, he's talking about Jim, he's talking about Bob, he's talking about Sue. He's talking about us as individuals. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And some of us today, you might say, I was never aware of this. 
Like I knew that God saved me. I believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then on the basis of uniting myself to him, I have received the forgiveness of my sins. But I've never thought about what it matters today. And I've not, never thought about the reality that my body is his temple. And if that's what your body is, then it matters how you treat it. It matters the, the activities you engage in how you care for it. You could have a whole sermon series on stewardship of the body, eating things that are good for your body, doing things that are good for your body, and abstaining from things that are bad. But over the course of even just like kind of the Baptist tradition, Baptist pastors tend to be, you know, they all shop at the, the big and tall store for the big clothes, not necessarily that they're tall. And so it's very difficult to stand in that way and say, you need to govern what you eat. Because the inference is, you need to govern what you eat so I can eat more of it. Come over to my house, let's have a potluck. Bring something great, perhaps fillets. <laughs> we recognize that our bodies are the temple of God. Look how he ends it. He says, you are not your own. You don't have a, an adequate expression of Christian freedom. Do it with this understanding. You are not your own. You're not your spouses. You're not your friends. You belong to Jesus. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were purchased in redemption. Jesus bought you. So every single thing you engage in needs to be done with this correct and right understanding that everywhere you go, you are representing Christ. And that whether or not the people around you know or see, God owns you. If you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, know this, that you were bought with a price. You should honor God in your body, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. I thank you for your word, for its challenge to us. Father, I pray for those in this room who have yet to submit themselves to you. They are curious about Christianity, but they've never, never committed themselves to you, that you would continue to stir in their heart, that you would call them to you. And th Father, I pray for those of us in this room not been living our lives and using our bodies in ways that glorify you, but in ways that satisfy us. We're not sure how to find our way back to you. Father, I pray this morning that for those that you would give them the comfort that comes from your spirit, the freedom that comes in repentance, and the joy of your embrace as you receive them to yourself. Father, we thank you that we are washed. We thank you that we are sanctified, that we are made whole by the saving blood of Jesus Christ. And we submit this to your name. Amen. Amen.